They come from another time. A machine wrapped in flesh. A soldier from a distant war. Both after a woman who holds the key to the future. One wants to kill her. The other must protect her. I'm here to help you. You've been targeted for termination. The Terminator. Your future is in his hands. The Terminator. Rated R. The number one movie in the USA is now playing everywhere. Welcome to Podcast Action Hero, the show that can't be bargained with, can't be reasoned with, it doesn't feel pity or remorse or fear, and it absolutely will not stop ever until you are dead. Get to the chopper! I want to ask you a bunch of questions. Hey, Christmas tree! I want to have them answered immediately. I'm not a program! Son of a bitch. My papers are very sensitive. Get your ass to Mars. I'm not shooting on you. Fuck you, asshole. My name's Gavin. My name's Jamie. And this is the show where we basically talk about Arnold Schwarzenegger films for an hour. This episode we are looking at 1984's The Terminator. Jamie, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but this is probably where, at least for me, this is really where it all started. Yeah, this is definitely the first time I'd ever heard of him. Um, I'm. He might be one of those people who I've never not heard of because of being around five when this came out, but this is definitely the one that I associate with him, probably still to this day. So what's your history of this film? Do, do you remember the first time you saw it? No, not at all. I got a funny feeling that I saw it after T2, um, and then probably maybe when I was an early teenager, maybe sort of adolescent at 11 that kind of it. I definitely saw a lot of films I shouldn't have around 8 to 10 and this probably would have been one of them. Yeah, I think for me this I I don't remember ever having not seen this film. So I don't remember the first time I saw it. It's kind of like it's always been there, but I'm almost certain that so even though I was born in the 80s, most of my sort of like self-aware times came in in the 1990s and so I think a lot of films like this and a lot of Arnie's films, I saw these probably in the 90s when they were on TV. And I've got some like really vivid memories of um, maybe it was getting towards my bedtime and they probably start advertising these films coming up, you know, so like after the soap operas are finished or after the news, we've got this film and I'd be like, Dad, 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 let me stay up and watch it. And he'd be like, no, I'll tape it. Like back in the olden days, we record it off TV and I'll watch it and if I think it's okay... I'll let you watch it. And this was back in the times when, frankly, you'd get a film like The Terminator, which, it's been, it, when this was released, right, it was an 18. Is it a 15 now? I think it's still yeah, 18. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost certain it's been uh, declassified or decertified or whatever you call it to a 15. Um, but I remember watching this in the days when it would have been on um, ITV back in the 90s. And they would have stripped a full 15 minutes out of the runtime in terms of violence and bad language. I have got the DVD right here, and it is a 15, yeah. I, I always thought it was an 18. Well, I think it was. I just think, like, over time it's been, you know, compared to what an 18 would be. To be fair, even for an 18 in the 1980s, this is relatively tame. You don't really see that much. Yeah, Cameron doesn't really go overboard with what is now considered the sort of R rating kind of stuff. He's like, there's, there's not as much swearing as you'd think. I mean, the violence is there, but it's mostly practical effects that are obviously practical effects or flesh wounds, essentially. Yeah, I think with a lot of camera films, he uses both 
language and violence as a almost as like a an exclamation mark or as like a an emphasis point on whatever's happening. I mean, you know, it's a separate film, but in Terminator 2, for example, when T-1000 sticks his knife through Todd's head, such a, oh shit, like yeah. moment. But you, there's not that much blood, you don't really see that much. It, in terms of like effects, it's almost like sword under the armpit that you'd get from like a, an old Robin Hood film or something. Yeah, first time I saw this, just tapes off TV with all the advert breaks in it and everything like that, and it was probably cut to ribbons and hardly anything in there like so many films that were in my formative years do we need a synopsis of this film everyone's gonna know it i think uh yeah i think we do i think we need to hear what your um synopsis is and uh, and i'll do my best to kind of chip in because i think this is one of these films where basically everybody's seen it everybody kind of like thinks that they know it off by heart and, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people who would listen to this, po- this podcast would think they know it off by heart. Yeah, I still think that a lot of people would kind of um, remember it and, and interpret it in different ways. So, yeah, let's uh, let's see what you've got and we'll see if I agree and then maybe if other people agree as well. Okay, the Terminator comes back from a future at 2029, turns up in an alleyway, stark bollock naked, attacks some thugs who are really into astronomy, really into <laughs> astronomy. And then from there, the observatory is their favourite hangout. It really is. A bit. I went to LA once, but never there. And as best as I can tell, it's nowhere near the city. Do you know what I mean? It's way out there. So immediately afterwards, Kyle Reese arrives in much the same fashion, steals a tramp's clothes, and from then on, it's essentially a, a race from for Reese Kyle Reese to catch the, and protect Sarah Connor, who is a waitress who is destined to become the mother of the resistance leader in the future. And the future isn't a good place because it is ruled by machines after a nuclear war. The rest of the plot is essentially a long chase scene. Mm-hmm. where Kyle Reese and Sarah Connor are on the run from the Terminator, not really ever taking the offensive because Kyle Reese can't do much against it with the weapons in 1984. There's a moment where they fall in love and have sex, and shortly afterwards, the Terminator catches up with them. He kills Kyle Reese, Sarah Connor kills the Terminator, and then it turns out she's pregnant with John. Yep. Because it turns out that Kyle Reese has got better aim than the Terminator. (laughs) Yeah, it's one of those kind of things that like time travel films can't really help but do. Yeah, it's the grandfather paradox, isn't it? That's the whole thing. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty good, uh, a pretty good wrap up of the uh, the plot, the synopsis, whatever you want to call it. Cool. One thing that I think you're absolutely right is that it is essentially, it's one big long chase sequence, isn't it? I think that's one thing this film does really, really well, and. There's one thing that I like to do, and it, it drives my girlfriend crazy, is when we're watching a film, and there's a bit where a character basically tells the audience what's going on, I'll sit there and I'll go, exposition time. Right. And there's so many films where you can just shout it and point it out. And it happens loads in this film. This film has got so much like just pure exposition, essentially because we are Sarah Connor, aren't we? We're, you know, the audience is seeing the whole thing, you know, lies through her eyes. Sure. And there's a few little bits in there, which maybe we'll talk about in more detail uh, later, Where, but particularly where, where Kyle Reese is sort of like being interrogated and he's explaining stuff. And then when the questions get a bit too much, like they might unravel the plot, he's like, I don't know. I didn't build it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, I do like Stop that. asking too many questions. <laughs> well, because so many films with a high concept, they have to explain like literally everything. And it's like, 
whoever is explaining it becomes this like omniscient narrator and it's like it doesn't really need to be that you need to get across the basic concepts it's you know this thing that can't it's a robot it can't be killed can't be bargained with can't be reasoned with all that kind of stuff and then really after that the only thing that needs to be set up are the limitations of what kyle can and can't do and i guess his reasons for doing the things that get him put in jail yeah exactly one thing i think this this film does right with the, uh, with the with the exposition, which is what I would argue, you know, a director like Christopher Nolan, for example, does wrong, is um, all of it, it seems to be done when they're moving, when they're doing something else. So, you know, he's explaining stuff while they're escaping. So, like, it's kind of like backing up what could be the most boring part of the film, basically explaining the plot, but backing up with action and stuff that's happening. Whereas if you watch... I don't know if you... Have you seen Tenet? I haven't. So there's a bit in that one, when I, without giving any spoils away on that, where there's a huge piece of exposition where one of the characters is explaining to the other characters about basically what's going on. Essentially explaining to the audience something so they understand what's talking about. And you've got these two characters walking around different places and you know the part of the conversation is in one street and then another part of the conversation is like a day later and somewhere else. And it's and it's so jarring. It doesn't. It, it pulls you right out of it. Whereas I think with this, it's a good way to kind of get all that across, all that stuff while something else is happening. And that's one thing I really like about this film. I can appreciate that because essentially, if it, if it's just exposition, you're asking a movie audience essentially to just watch a block of text or something. You know, it's like it's it's like facing a big paragraph in a in a book where where it's you... almost like a big scroll of yellow text heading off into the distance. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I don't know. Maybe this is why, as as you know, I'm a I'm a comics person over a books person, and and maybe that's kind of one of those things that like it breaks it up for you. You know, like there there is dialogue, there is exposition, there's narration, there's explanation for things, but there's something to go along with each stage of that, and there's something else to keep. You know, it it it's, it seems like I'm dumbing it down, but what I'm actually saying is it just keeps you keeps the momentum going. So we've got the uh, back at the start of the film where Arnie turns up at the I forget the name of the observatory. Do you remember the name of it at all? Is it Griffin Observatory? Sounds about right. The yeah, Griffiths maybe. If this was like a well-researched show, we would know that, but it's not. And this is what I was thinking. So he turns up at, from the looks of it because he walks over and he and he looks over the edge of the wall and there's LA basically off in the distance. And I'm thinking. That was really poor aim, you know, for a uh, for for a supercomputer to sort of drop him in there, and you could argue that the humans' attempt to drop Kyle Reese was maybe not as good because they drop him, you know, several feet above the ground, <laughs> so yeah. he pretty much falls on his face in a it dirty looks alleyway. Painful, right? <laughs> yeah, it really does for the actor as much as for the fictional character. You know, like it's. I did watch the behind the scenes and. They had him five five to six feet up on a plank, and yep. then he just had to drop onto concrete on his side <laughs> with no protection. That's just a naked guy. Yeah, because that's definitely like tearing a rotator cuff or something, <laughs> the way he lands on his shoulder. Yeah, and guaranteed it wasn't Michael Bean. Do you reckon? I don't think it was, because you see him from the back. Like, why would you risk your actor being injured oh, wow. when you don't need to? I suppose not. That's really pulled me out of it now. I don't want to ruin your life here Gav but sometimes the people you see on screen aren't the actors. No you take that back I mean I'm just saying there's a scene coming up with a mirror where it's not actually the actor 
I'm, hang on a minute. I can't, I can't deal with this. I'm sorry. So, yeah, so you've got the, the sort of two characters are beamed in. Um, a really nice appearance um, with, uh, with Arnie in the first scene from Bill Paxton, who we'll yeah. see through a lot of stuff. Uh, through, this must have been one of Bill Paxton's early roles, surely. And he's not great in it. He's only got like three lines, but they're all... You know how, how you imagine street punks were when you were a yeah. kid? This is exactly what I used to imagine street punks were as a kid. And nobody in real life is like this, surely. No, no. These are the uh, these are the street punks um, that were sort of in popular media at the time, uh, like the real moral panic sort of like roving street gangs. It's it's not too far away from warriors. Do you know what I mean? It's uh, it, it's that. Oh, I was going to go for the more um, the more highbrow version, which is Los Lobos from Short Circuit Two. <laughs> I've not seen that for so long. Yeah, it's not great. The other one that springs to mind for like a really good nineteen eighties example of um, of like inner city street gangs is Friday the Thirteenth Part Eight, Jason Takes Manhattan. That's the first one I saw, but I don't remember anything about it. Well, that's because there's not much to remember, really. It's not great. I know he kills a lot of people on a boat. Yeah, he does. It's funny you mentioned about Bill Paxton um, having three lines because did he spot what he had on his face? Three lines? Yeah, he essentially had like a tire track. Oh my <laughs> god! Yes, he did. <laughs> and, and I was watching that, thinking he'll never get a job. <laughs> what, was, was it a tattoo? Was it makeup? Did um, how long did he spend? If it was makeup, it was like every sort of Friday night or Thursday, I guess. Uh, on on this one, is is that what he's doing every night? Is drawing tire tracks across his face? And this is something that I don't know if this is in- intended. It's certainly not something that I've um, that I've picked up on before. But one of the lines that Bill Paxton says to the Terminator at that point, because Terminator's like, you know, I was going to say you close your boots and your motorcycle, but that's the next one. Yep. But he's like, your clothes, give them to me now. And Bill Paxton goes like, fuck you, asshole. And I wonder if that's where like Terminator puts that in his memory bank and then refers to it later. But doesn't he say it literally back to him at that point? No, he doesn't. He parrots it. He's repeat, surely. He repeats basically everything else. I'm sure he does. He's, he repeats everything else. Like, nice night for a walk and nothing clean, right? Nothing clean. Yeah, yeah, fair point. So when does he say that? It's when the guy's knocking on his door going, hey, buddy, you got a dead cat in there? And oh. he like goes through possible responses like, yes, no, maybe, fuck you, asshole. <laughs> he's just, like pulling that one out. This is after he's just had a, a long conversation about weapons. I guess maybe some stuff he knows, like maybe he knows weapons, he knows vehicles, he just doesn't know people until he spends some time with horrible people at observatories. Uh, and he doesn't know laundry. And he, <laughs> he doesn't know the concept of a nice night. Well, that's, yeah, it, it's really weird, isn't it? Because it, it almost seems like in that first scene, he's learning how to communicate with people, like he's an alien or something. This is one thing I noticed for the first time this time. He walks really slowly and really robotic when he's first... I mean, maybe it's just like, you know, he just got up. He's a bit of, like, <laughs> you know, his back's hurting a little bit. He's just taking it easy. But he does this long, intentional stride all the way to the edge of the observatory. And then, like, ten minutes later, he's getting out of a car like he's, you know, like he's in a rush. And he's, like, he's, he's making these very non-robotic movements. So, like... If he's learning, if he's meant to be learning things, he learns some things very quickly, like human motion, and then he loses it again later on when he's walking like the Terminator again. Yeah, and I wonder if that's got anything to do with like the order that they shot it, and it's like a development in Arnie's um, uh, performance or something like that, 
Or if, yeah, maybe it is like, it's like first thing in the morning, he's just come online, he's not remembered <laughs> how to walk properly yet. Because we all do it, you know. <laughs> when you, or especially when you're of a certain age and you wake up in the morning, your knees aren't working properly. And the first time you try and speak and it's more of a sort of oh, noise. I mean, you'd be gutted if you were a robot and the flesh covering that they gave you was just already old. <laughs> So that kind of, a couple of things that really jumped out to me there was Bill Paxton's like three tyre tracks drawn across his face and how long it would take to do that. And then I've got a note here which is uh, uh, violent fisting. Okay, I don't know what this is in relation to so you'll have to... uh... So when, so Bill Paxton pulls a knife on the Terminator and goes stab him and so the Terminator punches him in the stomach and from what it looks like is he basically puts his fist all the way up him or through him, straight through his stomach, and then pulls it out and it's covered with blood. And that really convinces the, the other guys to kind of go, do you know what? Yeah, no worries, take my clothes. Yeah, take take my clothes that the Terminator isn't going to be remembered for. A kind of a grey a gray jacket with chains on it and a, a patterned vest, which, honestly, if that had been the enduring image of the Terminator, I'd, I'd quite enjoy that. It's just a guy in a jazzy vest. Yeah, definitely. It, it, and it, it's not until later, really, that the iconic, like you say, the leather jacket and the, and the shades come out, which they just then can't let go of for every other film in the series. But I guess at, at this point, we should probably mention something about Kyle Reese. We see him before yeah. we see Sarah, right? Yeah, so Kyle Reese drops into the alleyway. Um that homeless man's like, you see a real bright light? And then he's like, that dude stole my pants. But then as best I could see, he was still wearing pants. He was wearing leggings. He was wearing <laughs> He was wearing black leggings. Which I guess, <laughs> you know, it's, um, as we know, it's the 12th of May. Uh, I don't know what, May's got to be still quite warm in LA. But on a night, you're going to get chilly, so wear a pair of leggings under your jeans. So Calry steals his pants. Fortunately, he's uh, he's got Under Armour, so uh, so he's okay. <laughs> and then Reese is essentially like escaping from the police for a while. Now this really got me. There's a part where the police are looking for him, uh, and I think I can't remember if this is just after or just before the product placement of the uh, the Nike trainers. I actually didn't. I didn't notice it. Did you not clock that? No. So yeah, Reese is he's like hiding. He's he's stealing bits of clothes everywhere. You know, he's got a t-shirt. He's getting his jacket down. And then he's hiding in the photo booth, and then his feet pop down, and he's got like a brand new pair of Nikes on with like a Velcro strap. Do you know what? I didn't notice that, but in the time since we watched it, I did buy a pair of Nikes. Yeah, I thought you like that, you. You're very impressionable. Yeah. You think adverts don't work on you, but they definitely do. But those cops are, I mean, even for, for movie cops, they're pretty shit because there's a bit where Reese runs up one of the escalators, jumps over, a cop comes along seconds later, shines a torch up there and goes, yep, that's fine, nobody's up there, and then walks off again. Yeah, it's it's a very Metal Gear Solid bad guy. It wasn't immediately in his radar, so he doesn't exist. Exactly. So you get a little bit of um, impression, I guess, that Reese is quite resourceful, he's you know he's good at escaping, he manages to evade all these cops, as if he's been like evading things his entire life, uh, steals a shotgun and then disappears into like the L.A., Night world, and honestly, I think if they made Terminator today, I think they'd play on the idea of which one of these guys that's come back in the, that's appeared in a bolt of lightning is the good guy and which is the bad guy, or are they both bad guys, or are they both good guys, or whatever. I guess maybe there is the option of them thinking maybe he's another one, another bad guy, 
but they give him so much humanity in this first moment that like you know he's the good guy already and it kind of takes some of the tension out later on yeah i get that and from what i'm aware of you know from learning about this film over the years is that in the original treatment for this the idea was that the two characters of reese and of the terminator were supposed to be a lot more inseparable in terms of like how they looked and how they acted and all that kind of stuff and it really wasn't until they were casted because um, I don't know if you if you read this or saw it, but apparently, um, you know, Schwarzenegger was approached for the character of Kyle Reese at first. Yep, but he identified with the Terminator more. Well, this is it, isn't it? Apparently his agent was like trying to warn him off it, you know, because you don't want to get typecast as a villain and all this kind of stuff. I'm sure that guy got fired not long after, uh, not long after that. But the Terminator was originally Lance Henriksen. I believe so, yeah. Just he was like to some... be all like spidery and like he was meant to be essentially like the predator like moving around he, he could blend in but he was also kind of had weird spidery climbing abilities and stuff and i can see that because also landon sanderson he could be well i suppose like what a year later two years later he ended up being a machine didn't he because then he was cast as bishop that's in true yeah so he's got that kind of like sort of otherworldly sort of look about him he looks there is something you know not quite human about him I actually really liked him in this film. His character is constantly trying to make inappropriate stories come out. He's, he's constantly trying to get like, oh, this this guy's head exploded or something like that, Some, something along those lines. And he keeps on getting cut off. And like, that's his entire character. It's just, he's just got an inappropriate story for every occasion. Exactly, yeah. And and that's the film I want to see. I want to see a film about his like, life before this night. I mean, you know, every time he, he starts to explain like, Oh yeah, the guy was probably on PCP. You know, he could do anything. You see the scar? I want to then see like a, doodly, 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 <laughs> you know, like crossfade to the story where Hal, which I think his character's name, when he gets that scar, every time he, he's got that story that he tries to tell, and then and then he gets cut off or something. I want to know. No, come on, let him tell his stories. <laughs> Maybe a Family Guy ever do a, a Terminator tribute? They'll do cutaways. We're introduced to Sarah riding her moped. And it's the 1984 Honda Elite CH125. Wow. That is some good research. I looked it up because I want to buy one. Really? You yeah. like it that much? When, no. <laughs> Advertising works on me, Gav. <laughs> <laughs> but also, yeah, I do. It looks, like a, it looks like it was designed by Clive Sinclair or something. It looks amazing. It's, it's pretty janky, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a real block. It looks like it's trying to be um, one of the like the big American road bikes, like a Goldwing, which is a Japanese road bike. But you kind of get the point. It's, yeah. the, it's almost like it's trying to be a spaceship. But she does lock. She locks it up outside her place of work, Big Jeff's, mm. um, where she works as a waitress. And she says to Big Jeff, I guess, who is the mascot outside, guard it for me, Big Buns. Big Buns, yeah. And I made a note of that because I was really hoping I'd forgotten that that line comes back when she's talking to Kyle or something later on. <laughs> so it's going to be like, it's almost like a Chekhov's gun or something like that. It's like, well, if you're going to say it in an earlier scene, you'd better say it later. So I think maybe there was a missed opportunity here when she's sort of like, without jumping ahead too far, well, actually definitely jumping ahead right to the end of the film, she crushes the Terminator in the hydraulic press. You're terminated, big buns. That's perfect. <laughs> I mean... She would have said that if she'd actually have seen Arnie when he first arrived. Yeah, because well, yeah. 
it was the eighties. They liked to show men from the back like that. Yeah, they 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 really did like in the eighties a nice cleanly shaved because they're never a hairy ass in no. uh, in eighties films. Cleanly shaved, ideally lit by moonlight and a bit and slightly glistening, slightly not sweaty because you don't want a sweaty, but you know like a <laughs> glowing. I guess so. <laughs> Is yeah. that a word? I think to redress the balance for all of us who don't look like that. They should have shown the bare ass of the uh, landlord in the place that uh, the Terminator was staying. He definitely the hairiest man <laughs> ever put to screen. For, and do you know I what? Include the... Harry from Harry and the Henderson. <laughs> For a second, I thought it was poorly out of Rocky. He's got that kind of look. Kind of looks like him. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much the same guy. Uh, yeah, so we've got uh, Sarah Connor, Linda Hamilton. She's sort of checking into work. Um, quickly established like she is Sarah Connor she's a Sarah Connor that and I suppose one thing we skipped over straight away was that we're already aware by this point that right that Arnie's working his way through the phone book trying to kill Sarah Connors yeah I guess so I actually can't remember at that, what point that scene comes but it's pretty early yeah because I think they, they established that um, he, he, so he, he, he knocks on that woman's door he's like Sarah Connor she's like yes and then he kills her Blinking with every single time he fires the gun. Really? Never noticed that. Yeah, if you if you watch it back, and I was reading this when I was doing, when I was reading up about the film, is that apparently Arnie he trained for a couple of weeks beforehand, trying to learn how to so how to dismantle a gun, put it back together, load it, doing it blindfolded, so it'd be like this, almost like he did it without thinking, which is great for the character, and trying to do it so that he could fire a gun, because back in them days it would have been you know live you know live blank rounds on set. So we could do it without blinking because machine wouldn't blink, and yet, when he's shooting that forty-five long slide with the laser dot sight, every single time you watch him, he blinks. And I don't blame him; I would. So have we already? Have we skipped over the scene where he buys all these weapons, or is that later? We have, yeah. We we massively jumped over that one just because you can't get past the any of these are good for home defense line. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, they're probably better for home renovation rather than home defence, you know. <laughs> As, you know, that's that's the amendment rights coming in, isn't it? Well, you know, I need to defend my home, that's why I need this machine gun. Yeah, absolutely. That's This is why the Uzi is going to come in handy. Yeah, definitely, you know. I need to put some holes in this wall to hang some pictures, so, you know, I'm going to have a, a machine gun to do it. I mean, it works. Whatever works for you. What I liked about this one, and this is something that immediately sort of pulls me into that era of being like a kid and watching these films was the appearance of the gun shop owner. The guy from Gremlins. Yeah, right, who is just bit part regular Joe guy in every 1980s film ever. He's in Gremlins as the... Um, is, is he the uncle or something in Gremlins? And he, he's, he talks... He's the one who introduces them, who calls them Gremlins, doesn't he? He's the drunk driver guy. That's the only thing I remember him as. Uh, he's also in... In a space with Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan, he's the cab driver that yeah. drives away with Meg Ryan and Dennis Quaid's towel in the door, which is another appear. Do you know what? We should do another podcast, which is about the appearance of men's butts in 1980s films, <laughs> because that's another one, another perfectly shaved, well-toned ass. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's Dick Miller. He's called and. I remember hearing about him or reading something that he had like a really successful career. And I think, I guess when, I don't know about you, but when I really became aware of him in these sort of bit parts, 
is like the downward kind of trage- trajectory, I should say, of his career. Yeah. Um, apparently, in like the fifties and the sixties, he was doing quite well. Yeah, because I mean, I guess he was probably around sixty years old at this point. Well, I looked up, I looked him up on uh, on IMDb, and he died in two thousand and nineteen. He was ninety years old. Holy crap! Wow. So he was going for a long time. That puts him in the era of like Marilyn Monroe kind of films. He was around for that kind of stuff. Yeah, it was. Uh, I guess just after the uh, what, what the Silver Age of Hollywood, maybe. Yeah. Because the Golden Age was what pre-war. I guess so. I don't know. That's crazy though. It's it's weird to think that like a guy who was around in all those things also was in Terminator, which has outlived him. Yeah. Absolutely. As a, as a franchise. And I wonder what somebody like him with that kind of, um, I don't know what the uh, the word would be, whether it be like prestige or pedigree or something of like working in those like really classic films would have thought about being in a film like. I always think that. Like when you look at like Golden Silver Age stars or whatever and you look them up on like IMDb and their last few roles, you're like, you must have hated that. Because by that point, film had become so less classy. So less classy? That's probably not the way to say it. Unclassier? Unclassier. Yeah, they're sort of in this, like, 1980s sci-fi horror going, is this what I trained for? I'm appearing in the first film by a guy who just worked with Roger Corman. (laughs) Made it. It's around, it's quite early on in the film, it's around this time where we get our first, like, flashback. Well, Mm -hmm. not the first flashback, the first flashback was pre-credits. Because you get that... You actually get that really good cut, which, because you know what Terminator is and you know how it works by this point, you don't notice as much. But after you've seen that initial pre-credits future setting, you then cut straight to the back of a dump truck coming Mm -hmm. down like a big piece of mechanism. And I think you're meant to still think you're in the future and that's just another machine. And then it reveals itself to be in the 80s. Yeah, that's one thing I like about this one is there is a lot of juxtaposition in of future machinery and at at the time contemporary machinery I guess with the dump truck at the beginning and then yeah you're absolutely right we pretty much go from the gunshot scene to where sort of Kyle Reese is hiding out in his car and he's sat by a construction site and you've got the bulldozers and I guess like the JCBs and all that kind of stuff and that is a really good cut I'd forgotten about that and 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 when it happened I was like I remember now how much I like that every time I see it, where essentially you, it's it's how they sort of transition from him being awake in his car to what turns out to be him dreaming his horrible trauma dreams of of what yeah. happened yeah. in his it's, past, our future. Where he just watches his partner, I guess, uh, or whoever he's doing that bombing run with, just yeah. gets obliterated, just turned yeah, into nothing. Yeah, blown to pieces. Blown to pieces, and you see the pieces as well. That's a really good cut. It is. It's really well done. But also, you get to see straight after that, he's driving like a car in the future. And until I remembered seeing that, well, until not remembered seeing it, until I watched it this time, I'd had one of those kind of, how does he really know how to drive a, an 80s car? But he's essentially driving an 80s car that's just decrepit and been souped up with tech kind of stuff I guess so it's like it's it's showing it's it's like shorthand for showing that oh no he's going to be able to drive a car in in the present day so don't worry about that yeah this is it he can use the stuff that we've got now or in 1984 in this case because that was the best that they had in the future was just like ruined cars and like and I guess at one point before they managed to get their hands on laser guns or ray guns as uh, 
as Dr. Silberman refers to them as later, um, I guess they would have been using those kind of weapons to uh, to fight them with. Uh, but yeah, I just I, I love the way that the, the way that it cuts from the bulldozers and everything, and then it's and then it's the I guess they call it the it's the hunter killers, right? It's the HKs. I don't know if you clocked on this, what was uh, on the radio just as he was falling asleep. Um, is either when he was falling asleep or just waking up? It was an advert. It was advertising the latest compact laser disc, and my note is futuristic. <laughs> Oh wow! Well, is it discs around at that point? Well, I, I guess CDs would have just been coming in, and it reminded me straight away of the scene from um, a bit a slightly different film called The Wedding Singer, <laughs> where the uh, where the, the oh, what's it? I can't remember what the the, the, the character's name is, but it's like Julia's um, fiance. He comes back with a CD player, and it's like brand new. And Drew Barrymore, Julia, she says, "Oh well, let's put a record on." And he's like, "No, no, no! You don't put a record on. You put a CD in it." And so I guess, like, yeah, in the early 80s would have been when CDs, laser discs, all that stuff would have been brand new at the time. And then I think in the next scene, it immediately cuts across to then the uh, the two girls getting ready to go out. So you've got Sarah and Ginger, who isn't Ginger. Well, I mean, some people are just called Ginger, right? It's not a nickname. What? I guess. I mean, I've never heard of anyone other than her and Ginger Rogers. I've only ever heard Ginger used as an insult. I mean, so have I, but I am ginger, so you know. <laughs> I've 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 heard it a lot. I like to believe that some people are called it by choice. So they're getting ready, and this was another thing, and I kept like noticing. We were talking before we started recording about how, when you start watching a film for a particular reason, in this case, you know, for, to talk about it on a podcast, how you you notice things that you otherwise wouldn't have noticed. And again, I don't know if this is deliberate or not, but did you notice the T-shirt that um, Sarah was wearing when she was getting ready? Not the Flintstones. Wasn't it? Close. Was it the Jetsons? It was the Jetsons, yeah. It looks like one of those knockoff um, like T-shirts. Like When I was a kid, I had a, uh, a Teenage Mutant Turtles T-shirt, but all the colours were wrong. I have been searching for exactly one of those T-shirts for the last 10 years. <laughs> what, the fake knockoff yeah, ones? I love them. They're so good. <laughs> They were just almost illegally bright coloured. Uh, I've got a note from this section. I wanted to know, does Pugsley survive? And we never actually find out. Pugsley, the what is he? An iguana? I think he's an iguana. But he's like he's a he's like a plot point, and you don't find out what happens to him. I assume he lives because he, he he couldn't possibly be Sarah Connor, right? All he was there for was to set up a cheap scare. When Ginger's making a sandwich, that's all. That was his entire point in the uh, in the thing. So later on, when Sarah's in the police station and she finds out that Ginger and Matt are dead, there is no mention of puzzle. She doesn't even ask. She don't care. Honestly, that's iguanaist. Well, I think that's where we really see what is, I guess, a little bit further along in her character arc in Terminator Two. That's really where we see her capacity to be the cold, heartless machine. Who is the real Terminator? Exactly. Pugsley, right? Pugsley? Pugsley? Pugsley Pugsley is the real Terminator. Pugsley. He does not look like he enjoys hugs. I know that much. (laughs) She picks him up, gives him a hug, and he's like... (sighs) Yeah, I can sympathise. Is that how you respond to hugs? Pretty much. (sighs) Yeah, I just just hiss and try and run away. Oh, bless you. So yeah, that that was my entire notes of that scene, was knock-off Jetsons, alternative vision of the future? Yeah. And then Ginger, not Ginger. I mean, I like that. Uh, Ginger annoyed me. Probably in the way that she was meant to, in the whole thing of, like, she's she's not ever listening to what's going on. She's constantly listening to 80s music, which, to be fair, is great. 
and you know it's I, I agree with her choices it's just she can't hear that the phone's ringing when Matt does his yep. uh, his sex call kind of whatever they called it it wasn't called a sex yep. call I know that much um, but it's which is a good gag the whole repeating exactly in the same exact fashion all of his sort of um, pillow talk or whatever it is Jesus Christ <laughs> But her her constantly listening to the music means that she doesn't hear when Matt's being beaten to death by the Terminator. But while Matt and Ginger are having sex, she's still listening to music and not really paying attention to him. Yeah, she's she's enjoying the music, but not the yeah. sex. Like she's on a completely different Which rhythm. I'm not sure if that's her problem or Matt's. Uh, it's probably Matt's, to be fair. I mean, he's full of himself, isn't he? Yeah. One of my notes is nice socks, Matt. Oh no, I didn't see him. He's got his bright red socks on the entire time. I mean, that's... The entire time when they're doing it. Afterwards, when he's like done the manly thing of passing out immediately after finishing and she goes off making a sandwich. And so, like, when the Terminator comes in and they're fighting, he's still got his bright red socks on the entire time. Wow. I thought it was a really nice touch. I mean, it's classy. He got a lot of character development for such a small part because, like you say, it, it sets him up as he's you know he's got this like one thing that he does to try and seduce a woman, and then he basically is he, is tough. He has a go, but he also has sex with his bright red socks on. He's also like Pugsley, only there for a plot point for a cheap scare because he's wearing a yeah. grey jacket. And as Sarah leaves the flat to go to the movies, it's the it's a cheap jump scare. It's not a big scary noise jump scare it's just she turns around and there's a guy right next to her wearing a grey jacket yeah and i never noticed that before and that's one of the things i like about it is there's a little bit of something for everyone in this film and you see something new every single time that it's on there's a i don't know if you noticed this as well um but there was one of the scenes when they're sort of cutting towards uh, lieutenant traxler and uh, and hal vukovic is he called i'll be honest i never took any notice of that yeah so um Essentially, Lance Henriksen's character. Oh, Bishop. He says several times in those initial sort of opening scenes where you're getting to know those characters how he hates the weird cases and he hates the press cases. And my notes are, you love those cases because he keeps trying to talk about them every single time. They're <laughs> <laughs> like his favourite kind of cases because it'll just give him another story to get interrupted about at some point later on down the line. This is kind of mean, but my immediate next note is uh, Lieutenant Traxler has tiny ears. <laughs> okay. Um, that's it. Paul Winfield. Tiny ears. I somehow have missed any of the connections as to how Sarah Connor ends up in Tech Noir. I mean, obviously it's because she's being chased by who she thinks is the person who's killing all the Sarah Connors, who is actually yeah. just Reese, who, for some reason rather than introducing himself and saying, look, you're in danger, you're going to have to come with me, waits until she's actually in very, very close to being shot in the head. But is she just walking along the street to go to the movies and has to duck into Technoir when she sees him? Is that is that how it works? Sort of. So she's in, there, she's in a bar at first. She had something to eat. She sees on the news that another person called Sarah Connor has been well, killed. And, uh, and, and you know, she, she decides to call the police, but the phone's out. So then she leaves there, she's walking down the street, and that's when, like, and that's when Reese is sort of waiting in a doorway with weird eyes. And his trench coat. Never wear a trench coat her. if you're watching someone. Yeah. Well, to be fair, you shouldn't just be watching someone anyway. Yeah, so uh, so then she realises she's being followed, and then she just goes into the first place with people, which uh, happens to be Technoir, 
with the best music and the most amazing dancing anywhere. I was immediately reminded of uh, of Wedding Singer twice in this film <laughs> because there's a character in Wedding Singer who's doing like that crazy eighties dancing, and if you've seen the if you've seen Wedding Singer. Every time the camera cuts away and cuts back, he's taken off another item of clothing until eventually he's just wearing like it, like no top and a tie. And it's the same. Everyone was doing that same sort of like really over the top kind of like swinging, yeah, swinging. Yeah, a lot of arms going on. Definitely. Did you clock the guy? Um, what the the bouncer? So when Terminator walks into Technoir and the bouncer sort of reaches over and gets his hand crushed, do you see his top, his t-shirt that he was wearing? It was essentially it was the um, like the spinal tap. X-ray T-shirt. I don't. So I don't know if you remember his Spinal Tap, where one of the I forget the name of the character, but he's, he's the one who's always talking about yeah, we turn our amps up to eleven. And in one of the scenes, he's wearing this like T-shirt with this green skeleton on it, and he's going, yeah, but this is actually my actual skeleton, <laughs> and uh, it's like a perfect representation. And then the guy in Technoir is like wearing a pink version of it, and it's like, I wonder if that's a perfect representation of his skeleton. Probably. I, di- I, I didn't notice the T-shirt because I was too busy noticing how his method of stopping the Terminator from walking in without paying was to put his hand on his shoulder and just keep, leave it there for like a, a good second without saying anything because he clearly was an extra that wasn't being paid to speak. <laughs> like the most, If that was what bouncers did, I'd just walk in everywhere. To be fair, if someone put their hand on my shoulder, I would clearly hiss and run away, as we've established. <laughs> you might be going in for a hug, and that would be horrific. We'd find you hiding on top of a fridge somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah, there's obviously a whole kind of um, shootout sequence in Technoir. They escape, and you've got Arnie punching his hand through the uh, through the windscreen of the vehicle. Have you seen how they did that? Uh, I know that they had to move the, the background instead of the car. Yeah, so essentially, instead of the car moving, it was like a big, long, I guess, like a screen that was like on, on rollers, and they just moved it in the background as yeah. well. And uh, and obviously, when Reese blows up the car, he shoots one of the cars, it blows up. Uh, I assume it was a Ford Pinto for it to explode <laughs> in an immediate fireball like that. I, I I wouldn't know one by sight, but I know, it's, I know it by rep, so probably. Yeah, exactly. And he runs through the fireball. For the rest of the film, he's now got no eyebrows. I don't know if you noticed that. I did that. notice that. And I made a note of it later on, thinking it makes his it makes him look a lot more intimidating and a lot more freaky. Yeah, he looks weird. He when looks he's like really when he's driving odd. the cop car and he's just scanning, it's like, oh, that's so creepy. And I hadn't put together that yeah. he actually originally had eyebrows. But the behind the scenes thing that I watched it shows that when when he's walked through the when he's been through the fireball and he's like got smoke coming off his jacket, yeah, you know how this happened, right? I believe so. But go on. They just poured acid on him. Yeah, that's it. That is my note. Is real acid. <laughs> <laughs> the goggles do nothing. Exactly. <laughs> so he's got no eyebrows. Um, Herman Munster hair now. Yeah, he looks very different. He's like he's not got his haircut anymore. He's like he's. He's basically got a, a Herman Munster front, but he's all party at the back. This is one of the scene, the bits as well where you've got the exposition chase scene, and I guess it's where the Terminator starts catching him up, and Reese immediately pushes Sarah Connor's head down into his lap, and he's like, get your head down! And it's like, not now. Now's no, not don't be Joe Pesci in Casino. I know he's like the original incel, right? Oh, yeah, probably. Essentially. Well, he's a virgin, isn't he, at, at this point? Yeah. That's it. I'm not sure if I, if I necessarily picked that up in previous watchings, but yeah, they basically flat out say, or Reese flat out says, I'm a virgin. And it's not like that's just the standard in the future, because there's kids. I mean, he's a busy lad. It's probably the last thing on his mind. 
Yeah, it's trying to bring down Skynet. Which, I made a note of this, they never say Skynet in this film. Did they not? They say Cyberdyne, and they say uh, NORAD, uh, something, there's, there's like a precursor to NORAD or something like that. And they mentioned that there's a network of computers and a defence grid and all that kind of stuff, but they never say Skynet. I can't believe I've never picked up on that at all. Yeah, but even before we watched it, I put questions I needed answered. And one of them is, do they mention Skynet? Do they mention Cyberdyne? Because we all know all this stuff, but it made me realise that maybe we know it from T2. And in fact, there was a deleted scene where they were going to destroy Cyberdyne, which is why they have all the pipe bombs in the first place. Got it. Now, I I didn't know that, but I did know that um, there is a deleted scene from right at the very end of the film when um, obviously Sarah is like leaving the, uh, the the factory where she crushes the Terminator and the camera sort of pans around and it shows that that is a Cyberdyne factory. Yeah, and just beforehand you've seen two Cyberdyne scientists recover one of the microchips from the Terminator, basically setting up T2 and is mentioned in T2, right? Yeah, definitely. In which case, in hindsight, it doesn't make a lot of sense that it was cut out, I guess, unless it was for pacing issues or where they felt that it, the film maybe felt like it had already finished and now they're just adding this extra bit on for no reason. The cut when they slam the ambulance ambulance door and the effect echoes and it goes into like black mm. and then fades out again. It's like, oh, that's so good. I If, if I yeah. had that cut, I'd be like, yeah, we can't just have two scientists after that. Yeah, that's a fair point. One thing that, and this is something that hasn't necessarily wound me up just on this time, but every single time. So, you know, you've got the scene where the Terminator's doing, like, the operation on his face, mm-hmm. and uh, and that's where, you know, you, you touched on it earlier, where you've got the, it's not really him. Yeah. Uh... Which I'm sure at the time, those effects were absolutely amazing. I honestly still think they are. I think it's the lighting that ruins it. You reckon? Because the lighting's different. It's just there's no there's no shadow on his face. It's just they're showing it off too much, and it, it doesn't match the the next shot. Well, also as well, he seems to cut as best I can see, just like the covering of the eyeball, mm. you know. And then when he t- he towels it away, and he takes the towel away, and all of a sudden he's cut out his entire eye socket. Now that didn't seem to me to be what actually went into the sink. It was just the casing of what made his eye look like a human eye. Yeah, I was expecting a full eyeball to come out, or at least half an eyeball, you know, the facade of it. Um, it just, yeah, it, you're right, it didn't look, it just looked like a film that came off, a piece of, a piece of like, protective film or something. But then, like, yeah, there was a much bigger hole than there needed to be. Yeah, we, don't get me wrong, in terms of, like, the impact of, like, that that makes more sense. Or, you know, as a, as a filmmaker, if you're going to go for a scene that is, like, where the audience is going to be like, holy shit, this guy's a robot. Yeah. That's the what the one that they went with makes sense. And I'm probably being a bit too fussy to say, like, well, couldn't you have shown him, like, cutting out chunks of flesh and eyelid and all that kind of well, stuff? Well, I mean, you don't see him really do the cutting, do you? You see, you see it from the other side of his face, and then you see mm. what falls into the sink. And all they need to do, needs to do is just drop a bit of lasagna in there or something, you know? Yeah, because, like, correct me if I'm wrong, they'd already done that by this point with Poltergeist, right? Like, Poltergeist, that definitely had I the I was just trying to think, tearing. yeah, had there been something like this before, and Poltergeist would have been, what, a year before? Two years before? 1982, I think it was. I think so. I think Poltergeist was about 82. Mm. But I'm sure everybody would be able to correct me on that. Well, it's it's very close to the launch of uh, the, the year that E.T. came out, because that's the only reason Steven Spielberg didn't direct it, I think. Yeah, that's right, wasn't it? It was it ended up being Toby Hooper because 
although was it Toby Hooper or was it really Spielberg and all that kind of I, stuff? I made I made that accusation in a, a some online post at some point, just saying, yeah, you can just tell it's pretty much Spielberg, and some guy unloaded. He, <laughs> uh, was it Toby Hooper? No, well, he was dead by then, so no. It was just, you know, he was one of those guys who, like, he goes in with a, a pre-written diatribe about, people yeah. always say this, blah, 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 and then you look at his... His avatar, and it's a picture of Toby Hooper, and his name's Hoop, like Hooper nineteen eighty one or something like that. It's like, oh, yeah, you've got a lot of uh, a lot of bias going on there, mate. Toby Hooper's not really dead; he's just on that same island with uh, Tupac and whoever else, and so it really was him. Okay, that's fine. Uh, I can, well, then I've had a brush with the celebrity. That's good. Uh, see, I've just got a note on there. Like, what happened to his eye? And um, and while this was going on, because it's obviously a bit of a slower. Um, point in this film, and I'm interested to get your thoughts on this. Um, because of a slow moment, I was doing a little bit of reading, and uh, this is where I actually heard, uh, read, not for the first time, but it reminded me that originally to play the uh, the Terminator, or certainly somebody to be considered for the Terminator, was O.J. Simpson. Yes, he was definitely mentioned in the behind the scenes. Did you read or hear, or do you know why he was ultimately considered, or, or why he was ultimately uh, ruled out? I didn't know. Um, because people thought he was too nice. Ooh. Um, mm. And this was a thing, right? With with with. And by the way, uh, this is a bit of a digression, but it's only really in the last few months that I realised why his nickname was the Juice. What? Because it's OJ Orange Juice. Yeah. Never put that. Never put those two together. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, he was he, he, the perception of him um, all the way up until. That trial essentially um, was that he was just such a super nice guy; nobody would buy it. What's this trial? I've not heard about this. <laughs> uh, what I do like about the uh, the, the scene where the, uh, the the landlord is sort of knocking on his door. Am I right in thinking that essentially the Terminator's face is rotting at this point? Like, is it supposed to be all infected and because he's got flies on his face and and that's where the landlord's like, "You got a dead cat in there." I'm assuming he can smell oh, his face. I never, I never really figured out why he said that. Yeah, I guess it just must be the smell then. Well, if it's if it's human flesh, then it, essentially any kind of like open wound is going to get nasty and gangrenous and all That's that true. kind of stuff. And he's got his face is open up. He's got various bullet wounds and stuff that he's not really doing much apart from bandaging his arm up. He's not really doing much about it. It's weird though because he can get shot many times in the chest, and well, I mean, we don't see his his chest, but I imagine he can keep the chest flesh or whatever is still fine. But once it attacks his face, it's it dies and doesn't heal. It's just weird that like it, so he clearly hasn't got like an actual ability to heal. Yeah, I mean they don't really touch on it until the uh, until Terminator Two where they pull the bullets out and then they ask, "Will these heal?" And he's like, "Yeah." Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So there's a scene where they pull the bullets out, and I can't remember if they stitch him up or if they just stitch up uh, Sarah Connor. But she asked the, t- the the question to the Terminator, "Will these heal up?" And he's like, "Yeah." She says, good, because if you can't pass for human, you're not much good to us. Oh. Um, but they're just kind of like bullet holes with the bullets removed. I guess at this point, he's not bothered taking the bullets out of those wounds, so he's kind of in there. Uh, and again, if it's like any... This is one thing that I don't think we necessarily appreciate in our lives, is that because we have you know, we can have tetanus injections, because we can have antibiotics and stuff like that, if we get like a serious wound, we're generally okay. Um, but in a lot of cases, even a small injury if you leave it untreated it gets really bad so i guess that's what's happening is uh he's not dealing with that kind of stuff because it's not his 
priority, and so it's uh, it's getting oh, nasty. Wow. So basically, if they just managed to stay away from him long enough, his tissue would have just died off, and everyone would have gone. Yeah, I'm not sure that that big robot guy is someone we should be going anywhere near. Yeah, it's would have been dropping off them in chunks. <laughs> um, by the way, I did not remember the um, the the facial prosthetics that he has, particularly later on when he gets hit by the uh, the truck. I did not remember them being as good as they were. Yeah, yeah, they're really good. I know they're pretty good in Terminator too. Well, that's the thing. Every time I see the the image of him turning to say "get out" to the other truck driver, I I yeah. remember that as being Terminator too because yeah. it looks that good. Yeah, it definitely does. And again, this is where I think it comes into play what you were talking about earlier. It's all about the lighting. Yeah. You know, they're really like creative with it. And the fact that his, his eyes lit up and everything, yeah, phenomenal. And, and I can imagine watching something like that in the cinema, never have, you know, there'd never been anything like that before. And like the impact that it would, that it would have had on people. So you've got the, the Terminators on the, on the motorcycle at first, and he's chasing them through the tunnel that's in every film that's set in LA yep. ever. And uh, you've got Kyle Reese throwing pipe bombs that if they explode a couple of feet in front of you or a couple of feet behind you, you're fine. Because they're basically smoke. There's no actual yeah, explosion. Yeah, the smoke bombs. And, uh, and, and so, yeah, it's Reese gets shot. He's basically dying in the car. And I think this is one of the points where Sarah realises that actually Reese isn't really going to be the one to save her. You know, she has to kind of take things into her hands, so in, into her own hands, and so just as the Terminator's coming up by the side with his tiny little pistol, which he's all he's got left, she rams him into the centre divide, uh, takes him off, but I guess at the same time crashes and flips the car that they're driving. You know what? We've actually skipped the police station we have. scene, which is everybody's favourite. Yeah, I think I, I guess like we've um, we've kind of jumped backwards and forwards in the uh, in, in in terms of the timeline. I mean, it's because it, it's iconic. We even forgot about the famous line. The famous line, which is the most important part to remember that. The thing that I was wondering is, I've always thought this is the first time he ever says, I'll be back. Yeah. Then I heard a bit of trivia where someone said, oh no, it's the second time. The first time he said it was in The Running Man. And then I believed that for years and it's only today I've realised The Running Man came out way after this. Yeah, it was at least a couple of years later, wasn't it? Yeah, so this has got to be the first time he says it, right? Yeah, and, and I believe that, okay, from from what little research I've done, is that the original line in the script was, I'll come back. Um, okay. And it was never meant to be delivered as like this big line or anything like that. It's, you know, I guess if it was written for like Lance Henriksen at the beginning, then it wouldn't have been this thing. But when you've got somebody like Arnie who says, I'll be back, it's like, you pretty much get an idea that it's not going to be good. Because he says, you'll have to wait. So it's like, oh, I'll come back. Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. Arnie basically created a career by changing one line. Yeah, essentially. And that became his tagline. Which I'm in no way tired of. Wait till we get to the Expendables 2. <laughs> Did he clock the uh, the line that was in there as well? One of the cops was like, said something about, it's the terrorists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which at the time would have been... Uh, Iranian, yeah, yeah, because they were all big on the the Ayatollah was the bad guy at that time, wasn't he? The big bad, yeah, Iran Contra and all that kind of stuff, I guess. So yeah, I can't believe we uh, we sort of skipped over that one uh, that bit before this as well. Is the brutal, the absolutely brutal crash that Arnie's involved in in the police car, where he's just head on mm-hmm. into a wall, and they show it. It's so good because there's no grandeur about it. It's just slam. Yeah. It is definitely, and you sort of see like I guess it would have been like the dummy's head just goes straight into the 
side of the car and all that kind of stuff. And this is something that I found out not even that long ago, probably on my last watching of this, um, which would have been on DVD and watching all the extras, was that the truck explosion at the end was a miniature. Yeah. And for me, one thing that really sort of confirms this is a horror first and I guess like a sci-fi film second is it's got one of the, not even one, like two of the best killer comes back moments. Well, one of them is the initial image that James Cameron had in his dream when he first came up with the idea, right? Yeah, of the metal skeleton coming apart the flames. Yeah, it's perfect. And that's it. You think he's dead, but it comes back and it's so much worse. Plus you get uh, some amazing stop motion, which for me creeps me out more than if it had been a CG or, uh, you know, there was a model as well, a a life-size version, but, Mm -hmm. but just seeing stop motion is enough to slightly unease me anyway it's that uncanny valley thing i get yeah i get what you're saying i think for me that's one of the few parts of this you know not notwithstanding the fashion and the music and all that kind of stuff but yeah the sort of harryhausen-esque stop motion stuff um i think even when i was a kid and i was watching it it it, it kind of looked a bit janky to me so yeah but you, you get not just one but two uh, killer comes back moments in this one as well because the part where essentially Reese isn't killed by the Terminator, he kills himself, doesn't he? He martyrs himself massively by blowing himself up. He doesn't think to get into a dumpster this time. No, not at all. Uh, and so again you think, oh well that's definitely killed it, there's no way it's coming back from that one but it does, it does come back, it's got no legs it's only got one hand but it's still uh, managing to, uh, to, to still go after Sarah and, uh, and trying to kill her. But I mean, it's also that explosion injured Sarah, right? Because she gets shrapnel in the leg from the explosion as well. Yeah. So, like, it's it's a good bit of story selling. It doesn't kill the Terminator, but it does kill one of them and significantly injure the other. Well, that's it. It's yeah. The the, the Terminator's effectively crippled from that one, but so Sarah, and so they're both like kind of like reduced to the same amount of like movement. She can only crawl away. It can only crawl after. And as a piece of like tension building, it's perfect. Did you also notice that um, one of the things that's bugged me for at least a decade is how does she know from just feeling around the side of this machine that the button that she's going to press is the one that crushes the Terminator while he's in there? And it turns out that there's a scene like two minutes before that where she accidentally presses it. Really? Yeah, because it's just a thing that happens. Oh, because that's where the... I guess that's where the Terminator realises that... Because he loses them, doesn't he? And then when she... Is that when she trips, presses it... It goes down yeah. and the Terminator is like, oh, that's where they are. Yeah, exactly. It, I never even it, noticed It that. gives away their location, but it also lets her know, oh, that's the thing to press if you if you want that thing to come down, because it shows the pneumatic yeah. press or whatever it is. It's all there, isn't it's it? All it's there. all there for you. Everything that ne- you need to know is, like, seeded earlier. Chekhov's hydraulic press. <laughs> Chekhov should get a credit in this, like Harlan Ellison. So, yeah, Sarah crushes the Terminator. You're Terminator fucker. Um, your terminated big buns. <laughs> I still think that would be better. All is well except for Kyle. Who, yeah, he's dead. The thing that I've always wondered about this film is that you know, like science fiction future, go back in time to save the the future kind of thing. They're always about this future's terrible. Let's go back in time and change it so it's good. But this is this future is terrible, but it's going to be even worse. We're just sending someone back to keep the status quo. And it's so bleak. It's like, even if they win, Judgment Day is still going to happen. And she's just got to be ready for the... She's got the knowledge now that in the next 40 years, 
there is going to be a nuclear holocaust and she's going to have to yeah. survive it. And that is what I think that's one thing they pick up really well when uh, when T2 starts is that knowledge of the impending like, you know, 3 billion human lives ending and all that kind of stuff. That knowledge basically sends her to a point where she's presenting as seriously mentally ill until the point where she gets locked up and you know she's been, you know, from the sounds of it as as they described at the start of that film, she's already spent the last few years blowing up some computer factories and so she's recognized that the status quo isn't going to be good enough. Right. You know, that's what that's what Reese is trying to get to, you know, not making it any worse. She's proactively out there trying to make it better. But because of the deleted scene where they were going to blow up Cyberdyne, that does completely change it. Like that it mm. would have been that kind of a film if they had left that in. Well, I mean it wouldn't because like they were they were immediately intercepted by the Terminator anyway, so they used all the pipe bombs on him rather than blowing up Cyberdyne. But it's just weird that like it's bleak because they got rid of a scene where Kyle was like, That's not the mission. And mm-hmm. she's like, Yeah, but it's gonna have to be the mission because I don't want to go through a Holocaust. Yeah. And it's just it's crazy that like that one scene being left out changes the, the movie from a well not optimistic but at least proactive to just entirely reactive. Definitely. Alright, so uh, I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the film. Yeah. Obviously Sarah escapes to Mexico. How do you know it's Mexico though? There are, there are no signs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, literally no actual signs. So you've got all the signs are in Spanish. Um, they're selling fuel by the litro. Of course. And uh, you've got the piñatas hanging in the background. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it's uh, and it's a desert, so it's. I think that's kind of the thing. So I guess at this point she's basically getting as far away from any big cities as, uh, as she possibly can. I guess what I'd ask is that would you, after your lifetime watching this film and after watching it again today, would you recommend this film for somebody else? Uh, 100%. It's an absolute stone cold classic, and the way it's dated is not bad. It's not. It's. I mean, there's a couple of janky effects, so there's probably a few like Gen. Oh, I nearly said Gen Z, but Gen Z. As I have to call them. Would probably look at that and go, "Oh, that's a bit crap." But everything else holds up. It's. It's an absolutely. It's like there's no fat on it. It's an absolutely perfect piece of especially for a debut so with this one is it a case of do it now or is it put the cookie down okay do it now what about you yeah same it's uh in terms of a, a piece of filmmaking it's like, like i say there's no fat on it 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 gets the job done it's almost like a a handbook of how to take a really low budget film and get something really packed out with action, with uh, with story, with plot, uh, in a really short space of time. And for the most part, I agree, I agree with you about the dating thing. And I think a lot of a lot of that comes down to the fact that when the the main part of the film it's set in the modern day at the time, it's set in 1984. I think for a lot of sci-fi films, the reason they date is because they try and suggest some kind of like future technology, which they get away with it because the Terminator is such an outlandish piece of future technology. Yeah, you know it, it's still kind of believable that it could happen, and while the dates and the timelines, I mean, there's a bit where I don't know if you clocked it where Reese says uh, he served with you know this particular command from 2021 to 2027. Yeah, and uh, and it's like okay, so that's not obviously aged well in terms of like because they've always got to be in the near future, near enough to be scary, and now we're in that future. Obviously, it doesn't work well, but there's no weird 
you know, weapons or computers or anything that don't sort of track. So, yeah, um, works well as a film. So I would recommend it to people, even if they're not Arnold Schwarzenegger films, even if they're not sci-fi films. It's just a good film. Yeah. But if you are an Arnold Schwarzenegger fan, and for some reason you've not seen this yet, get on it, because it is the one that started it all. Do it now. Excellent. Uh, I guess that's all, all that's left to do is to decide what we're going to be watching next time. Yep, the way that I've suggested doing this is that we, we randomly choose the next film to watch by spinning the Wheel of Pain. The next film will be The Sixth Day. Okay, I've not seen it. That's good. I've seen the beginning of it. It's got Dennis Leary in it, right? Probably. <laughs> I have seen it, um, but I'm not going to say too much because I don't want to spoil what we're going to talk about next time. Yep. All right, fantastic. So thank you very much for tuning in to Podcast Action Hero. I've been Gavin. I've been Jamie. And we will speak to you again next time. <laughs>